by all, all by God's grace that we are privileged to open our Bibles and study together again. So let's do that. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 18. Today we pick up right where we left off in this magnificent message that Christ is giving to his disciples. As you can see there in the first few verses of Matthew 18, Jesus took a child and likely set that child on his lap. That child was a beautiful word picture, the word picture of Christians as children. How is he applying this? Well, first, Jesus says, because we enter the kingdom as a child. We learned that last time, not with mindless faith. That's not what it means to enter the kingdom as a child. It means to enter the kingdom with humility of a child. People come into the kingdom, they're saved when they humble themselves, agree with what Scripture says about their fallen condition, that we have no credentials, no merits, nothing that qualifies us for relationship with God. And so we enter as a child humble and utterly dependent upon what Christ has accomplished for us. In our text today, Jesus continues this theme, and he basically says, you entered as a child, now treat one another, love one another as fellow children. You show them love, you show them tender care, you show them the compassion as you would a child. That's how children should be treated, and therefore that's how you should treat one another. Love, which means you receive them, you protect them. You rescue them as you would children. And let me read to you verses 5 to 14. This is, again, Jesus speaking. So let's listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you in for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the Word of God. I was reading a sermon this week from one of my favorite preachers, and he noted that this chapter is full of recognizable, memorable statements that you probably, if you've been in church long at all, you've probably heard. If you grew up in church, as I and so many of you did, you, you heard a lot of these passages, passages that we recognize that you would remember. Whoever receives one such child of mine, and he receives me. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? And then you look, at, look on to the rest of the chapter. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Later on, a really familiar passage. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And toward the end, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. These are phrases and passages in the Bible. I think if you've been around church much, you've heard these a lot. These phrases though, have been often repeated out of context. In the halls of Christianity, I think many of us are not familiar with what the meaning of these passages are, and so they're just sort of applied to any situation that we deem uh, important or necessary. And oftentimes you hear someone say something like this. How many times have you heard you go to a poorly attended prayer meeting and someone says, well, where two or three are gathered, well, does that passage have anything to do with the prayer meeting? Does this entire chapter have anything to do with the prayer meeting? Well, they don't. The context is missing. What is the context? The context is, as I mentioned at the beginning, the context is Jesus training his disciples and using this child that ostensibly is sitting in his lap as a word picture. The context is set. We saw last week. As for this little child in verse 2, he sets the child there in his lap holding him. He teaches disciples that we are to enter the kingdom as children. You come to God, you trust in God by not trusting in yourself, by turning, but by turning away from self-sufficiency. And if you can hold on to that analogy for the rest of the chapter, it all begins to make sense. All of these passages, perhaps you, you heard growing up, begins to fit, begin to fit in place. So the passage we're looking at today, we entered as a kingdom, and now we, we look at one another as children of God, loved by God, treasured by God, and we treat one another as children of God. And so not just in our entrance into the kingdom, but to one another, we are humble. We are not tactless and insensitive, independent, proud Christians. We are humble Christians. We are children. We need one another. We need the church. We need the body of Christ. We are reliant for their love and their care and forgiveness, and we need to show the same to one another. So in our passage today, as you see, Jesus takes this analogy of Christians as children to the next step, treat others as children. Obviously, this doesn't mean be condescending to one another as you might a child, but loving, protecting, rescuing. And we know he's speaking analogously here. He's applying our actions, yes, perhaps to literal children, but figuratively, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. He's talking about all Christians as little children. So this is the evidence here. This passage is this this idea of treating one another as fellow children of God. We treat one another as we would children. But what does this kind of love for children look like? What does this look like? Well, according to Jesus, he gives us three ways in which we can show our fellow children that we love one another. Three ways, perhaps you want to write these down. How do we love one another? First, receive one another. Receive one another. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, Jesus says. That word there, dekomai, to receive someone into your home as a guest. You welcome them. You invite them into your life. You show them hospitality. You show them love and kindness. You show them warmth. You treat them as you would your own children. 
Jesus says, in fact, receive them in my name. That means, of course, you receive them under this idea that we're united with this person by our faith in Jesus Christ. We, we come in the same way to Christ as, as each other. We, we have come to him humbly. We have come to him as children. We have come to him because of what he's accomplished, not what, not what we've accomplished. And Jesus says, when you do that, when you welcome and receive people in that way, when you love people in that way, you receive me. You welcome me. We find out, you read the rest of the Bible, the rest of the New Testament, we find out the opposite is true as well. James chapter 2 says, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Believers will come in contact with one another from all over, especially in a place like our church, especially in a place like Hawaii. Believers come in from all over, and we have this constant rotation, a lot of folks military coming in and coming out and, and, and departing and leaving and coming into a part, new people almost every single week in our church body. We receive them. We show no partiality. They come with all different backgrounds, ethnicities, socioeconomic status. Jesus says, don't, or James rather says, don't dishonor them. He says, if you dishonor them, you blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. That's James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 for reference. Show love to them. Receive them. Welcome them. Well, think about how do you welcome a child? If a child were to come to your door and needing help and needing a home, needing a place, needing love, what would you do? You embrace, you show love, you accept them, you help them in whatever way they need joyfully, you show them kindness. The Bible actually tells us in the body of Christ, in a local church, there is to be embracing and even kissing. I don't know, if you, if you haven't been here since before COVID, if you came here during COVID, you don't know this. But our church is a huggy, kissy place. And uh, that's not by my doing. This, ex- this was long before I came. This is a huggy, kissy place. And I'm not, I'm not a real sentimental person, but, man, I love it that we are a, a people who embrace one another, who kiss one another, appropriately, of course, <laughs> who love one another and show that affection to one another. I remember when I first came, somebody said to me, so I can't remember who it was, but somebody came to me and said, you know, my husband has been gone for an entire year on deployment. And to come into this church and be touched and embraced and loved has meant so much to me. Just to have that embrace as, as fellow children of God. Receive one another. To reference James again, he ties the, the, his whole argument in chapter 2 as an evidence of genuine faith. You receiving one another is an evidence of genuine faith. Just like what we saw in John's letter. You show God's love by showing love one for another. By the way, I just want to say this on the side here because someone always makes a comment. This doesn't mean we're cold to unbelievers. This has nothing to do with how we treat unbelievers. The Bible talks about we walk in wisdom with unbelievers. We treat unbelievers with kindness. We welcome people who we don't know or Christians into our families. We welcome them to our homes. We're kind to people. But what Jesus is talking about is fellow children, fellow believers. And there is a specific love that we have for fellow believers, right? There's a very special love that we have reserved for one another, just much like you parents would have a very specific love for your children. We show a very special kind of love for fellow believers. Again, at NBC, we have a long, illustrious history of loving people, hugging and kissing and welcoming everyone. Jesus says here, whoever receives a a fellow child in my name receives me. What would you do if Jesus came knocking at the door of your home? Give him a firm handshake and get back to thumbing through your Facebook on your phone? No, you'd embrace him. 
He'd welcome him. What do you need? What can I do? I want to love you. I want to embrace you and welcome you. Now, as we move back to normality, I know that there's to love people. If you're carrying this disease, to love somebody is actually to stay away from them. So I understand we're kind of in this weird time. But as we move back to normality, there will be a time when there is, again, free hugging and kissing and embracing one another, and we ought to look forward to receiving one another in that way. So that's the first way we show love to one another. We receive one another. Second, protect one another. Protect one another. Now, this section is a little bit longer. It does include a passage that we've covered before. Jesus says something. He repeats something here that we've actually discussed before back in chapter 6, or chapter 5, that is. What's he say? Well, this section is sort of broken down in two sections. First, verse 6, he says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be, have, a, have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's sort of the opening illustration. That's how bad it should be for those who refuse to protect your fellow children, who instead drag them into evil. And then Jesus takes us to a hyperbole. Again, it's a hyperbole that he's used before. Hyperbole simply means an exaggeration used for emphasis. That's what the word hyperbole means. He's, he's giving us an exaggerated thing to, to illustrate something. Verse 7, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Here's what we've heard before. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled than, or lame than with two hands and two feet be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. So first, he gives that principle and that illustration. And then second, he gives that hyperbole that he's used before to give us a little bit of clarity about what he's talking about. So let's look at these one at a time. Jesus said, if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be worse for you than if someone took a great millstone, tied it around your neck, and threw you into the ocean. Now, that sounds like a pretty miserable death, doesn't it? You can just imagine the horror of that death, a giant millstone. A millstone with this giant piece of granite that was placed in a giant circular trough, and they would attach some animal, an animal or some animals to it, and they would turn that great millstone that barely fit in that great trough, and they would dump grain into it and crush it into flour or something usable. Now, this is a huge stone. You imagine that huge stone being tied to your neck and you thrown into the ocean. So we better get this right, because whatever judgment you face, Jesus says, it's going to be worse than that. And what is that sin? Well, it's causing other believers to stumble, causing other believers to sin, involving them in sin, inciting iniquity in their lives, failing to protect them from sin. And again, the analogy of little children is perfect because some of the worst evil perpetrated on this earth is when people involve children in their sin, is it not? I don't know about you, but I think a millstone hung around some of those people's neck is pretty appropriate. That ought to happen to some of these people. But, of course, the analogy, again, looking at this whole chapter, little children, here we are, all believers. We should not cause one another to sin. We ought to avoid causing one another to sin at all costs. We ought to protect one another from sin at all costs. 
The end of verse 7, woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And he gives us this hyperbole. If your hand or your foot cause you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame, two hands, two feet, be thrown in eternal file. Nine, he says the same thing about the eyes. Again, this should sound familiar, so this sort of illustrates or gives us a little more clarity what he's talking about. Back in Matthew chapter 5, 29 and 30, he says the same thing, and he's talking about temptations as they come to you. As, as temptation comes to you, you ought to be radical in your pursuit of holiness. You ought to be radical in pursuit of holiness. He's not saying, actually, you know, get out the knife and start doing these things. It's hyperbole. He's saying, take extreme measures to avoid sin. Take extreme measures to pursue holiness. That's what Jesus is saying back in Matthew chapter 5. And there's a little bit of a debate here. Some people say that this, Jesus has sort of just decided to talk about something else for a moment. He's talking about little children before. He's talking about little children after. But right now, he's talking again about personal holiness. However, I don't think that that school of thought is uh, the right school of thought. I think there's a better option. First, it just doesn't fit the flow here. Like I said, before this, he's talking about how we treat one another as little children. After this, he talks again about how we treat one another as little children. So I just don't think it, it, it fits with the flow. Second, as I mentioned, Matthew's already used that quote of Jesus to talk about personal holiness. You'd kind of say, well, why in such a weird place would he talk about this again? I think it's because Jesus brought this up to say, basically, your pursuit of personal holiness is analogous to your pursuit of one another's holiness. Help one another in their pursuit of holiness. Be radical in the way in you in which you protect one another and help one another and, and encourage one another in their own holiness. Just as you should be radical about your own holiness, be radical about protecting one another and in their pursuit of holiness. I thought to myself, how many times have I caused and in what ways have I caused others to sin? I'm sure you could probably think of more, but I wrote down a few things. The obvious one, obviously, is to just tempt others to do something wrong. You're trying to lure them in with some sin you know is wrong. Evil enjoys company. Any of you couples ever try to do a diet together? Uh, you're laughing because you know exactly what happens about day five. You see your husband sneaking some cake, and what does he say to you? Just, just have some. Just, just have a little. We'll just call this a cheat day, right? Sin enjoys company. Have you ever lured someone into some sin? You know it's wrong. You know it's not right. But it makes you feel a little better about yourself if someone else is doing the same thing, and so you just sort of bring them into your sin. What else can we do to cause Christians to sin? Well, we tempt them with anger. We do things in order to anger them or rile them. Ephesians chapter 6 tells parents, don't stir your kids up in anger. Don't be insensitive to them. Don't be angry with them. Don't argue with them. Don't be bitter towards them. Well, the same would be true of other believers. Don't do things that would incite them to be angry towards you. Which brings up another way in which we cause others to sin, and that is we gossip about them. We talk about them behind their back, and, and boy, does that cause, things, cause them to sin. That tempts them with anger. That tempts them with frustration. That tempts them perhaps to gossip about you and or some sort of recompense. We gossip about people. We draw them into sin. What else can we do to cause people to sin? We can cause them to violate their conscience. We bring them into 
our own activity, which may theologically or biblically technically be permissible, but we know it's something that perhaps their conscience does not allow. Paul says this to the Corinthians, talking of meat offered to idols. He says, it doesn't matter if something theologically in a technical way, it's permissible, permissible from a theological standpoint. I won't do it if it violates another Christian's conscience. It doesn't matter if it's permissible theologically. Sure, maybe without them I can do this and feel fine between my, my relationship between me and God. But if it's causing them to come into this and violate their conscience to do this or perhaps violate their conscience and being judgmental towards me, I won't do it. You don't want to encourage Christians to the habit of violating their conscience. This is not a good thing to encourage other believers to violate their conscience. Now, this, this comes to play especially when you have, there are some freedoms that some of us take that other of us, others, others of us don't take. And, and you always have those Christians that in the name of grace, the name of freedom in Christ, they go around ringing this bell and whatever issue they think that other Christians ought to feel free about doing, and they try to encourage other Christians to violate their conscience. Well, that's not a good thing, uh, Paul says to the Corinthians. Don't encourage others to violate their conscience. It's a sin to do this. This is a, brings up a final way I wrote down. I'm sure there's many more that would cause others to sin. We sometimes push Christians to the edge of right and wrong, right? We find out what is the literal sin in the Bible that's mentioned in the Bible, and we maybe encourage Christians to come along with us all the way to the edge, right up next to that sin. Well, inevitably, one or both of you will fall into sin. Again, I think you can probably come up with other ways in which we cause people to sin. We drag them into sin when we should be protecting them. But how do we protect one another? I think one thing, we encourage one another to righteousness. We build one another up. That's not more than just making people feel good about themselves. It's encouraging them to do the right thing. I like to think that that's one of the purposes of our small groups, our family groups, is that you're living life together. You're dealing with perhaps other family members or lost friends at work, and you're dealing with problems and issues, and you, you bring them to your family group, and you say, hey, this is what's going on in my life. And you encourage one another to do what's right. In fact, I think in a church, in a local church, there ought to be a culture, there ought to be an ethos that we are all sinners, but we're pursuing righteousness together. We're pursuing holiness together. There ought to be a, a mentality that we're all in this together and to do what's right and to be a better person and to be more in line with what Scripture says. And we come and we gather here at the church as, as a congregation, but also in our small groups, we, we gather so that we can encourage one another toward righteousness and build this, this culture of, of the pursuit of holiness. Not a mentality that's holier than thou, not a mentality that we're better than anybody, but we're all sinners and we need to encourage one another to do what's right. Some of you are fairly new with us, and we, since we've started handing out the little library to those of you who are new, we give books out, and one of the books we give you is is uh, Mark Dever's book, The Gospel and Personal, Personal Evangelism. And in that book, he, he mentions better than a, a, an evangelism program in the church is when a church, a local church, creates the culture of evangelism where we constantly talk about and encourage one another and push one another to evangelize. Well, I think the same could be said about righteousness and holiness. We protect one another by constantly discussing, how can I be a better person? How can you be a better person? What can I do? How can you help me? Here's my problems. Here's my temptation. 
I'm an open book. Help me be a better person. What can we do to pursue holiness? Another way we can protect one another from sin is to do, as Paul said in Romans 12, 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all. Don't be offensive about tertiary issues, opinions. Don't be offensive about issues. Don't be an offensive person overall. When there is a difference that you cannot compromise, you can still show warmth and kindness. You can still be a, a nice person. My kids will laugh at this. We used to have a saying in our family when our kids were a little bit younger. It was very simple. I believe, I told my kids, I believe this will solve 99% of your conflicts. The saying is this, don't be a jerk and don't overreact. So when our kids would fight, I would ask them, who's the jerk and who's overreacting? And they would fess up, I'm the jerk, I'm overreacting. Now, if you just do that, if you live by that adage, don't be a jerk, don't overreact, you'd, you'd find a lot of peace in your life. Just be a peaceable person. Be a peaceable person. And be at peace so far as it depends on you. Another way we can encourage each other toward holiness and righteousness and protect one another from sin is to speak only good of others. In the next section, there's a very clear pattern of what we do when a brother or sister has sinned. It's a very clear pattern. And it does not say, step one, tell a whole bunch of people in the church about how that person is sinning. Step one is you go to them alone. You protect their reputation. You don't talk about it to others. You protect them. You love them in that way. You give them an opportunity to talk to you about it. Maybe you might find that they're not sinning at all. It's, it's you that's being judgmental. Maybe you might find that they are sinning or they're slipping and they really need help and they, they would love for you to help them in this particular sin. But certainly don't go talking about this issue and about that person to others. You speak good of others. Now, it's interesting because in that passage, what you're going to find is when someone you, you perceive someone is sinning, that is your option. You go to them alone. That's sort of the first step in terms of interpersonal uh, discipleship or discipline. You go to them alone. If you do not want to go to them alone, you know what your other option is? Do nothing. Don't say a word to anybody. If you're not willing to talk to that person alone about their sin, you only speak good of them. You speak positive things of them. You don't bury it and build a grudge. You speak good of them. That's how we encourage one another in holiness. All right, well, I'm sure you can think of other ways to encourage others in holiness and this family of faith. You protect one another from sin. The church should be, again, this place where there's this constant encouragement. When you get around church people, you know what it is. You go to work, you get around people, and there's, there's foul mouths and foul stories, and, and there's no encouragement this ought to be a safe haven. This ought to be a place, whether it's family group or this, this congregation on a Sunday morning itself, this ought to be a place where, where holiness is encouraged. Not holier than thouness, but holiness and righteousness is encouraged. We're protected against sin. Now, the rest of the chapter deals with one basic issue. When our fellow children are sinning, what do we do? How do we love one another when we see another child of God sinning. And today is just the introduction to that idea, and then the rest of the chapter gives us really the how. This is more of the motivation, the why, and then the rest of the chapter deals with 
the how. What do we do? Number three, we rescue one another. We rescue one another. Now, all these sayings, all these different disparate sayings that you heard growing up from this chapter that didn't make much sense or perhaps were used out of context start to flow and start to make sense. We rescue one another. Very familiar parable Jesus gives us in beginning in verse 10. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has, has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. There's a few notes I want you to make on this passage. First thing is note, note that word despise. That word clearly does not mean simply hate, like we think of despising someone, we think of hating someone, and you might say, oh, I never despise people, actively hate people. We all know that's wrong, but this story is telling us a little bit of a different kind of despising. It's despising someone with neglect or indifference. It's refusing to rescue them or help them and love them in that way. The word despise there literally means thinking very little of someone. In other words, you have to think very little of someone if you see them in sin, if you see them running off with sin and not do anything, not say anything, letting them just go. You must truly despise someone if you just let them stray and live in their sin. Don't despise them, Jesus says. Rescue them. That's the lesson here. The next phrase there in verse 10, it's a pretty interesting phrase, another lesson here. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What in the world does that mean? Well, angels are creatures that were created by God, ultimately to bring glory to Him. And they do this in a number of ways, depending on their assignment. I don't know whether these assignments are permanently fixed you know, such and such an angel does one thing throughout eternity, or if they shift according to assignment, we don't know that. We do know that we see some angels doing some things and some angels doing other things in the Bible. We don't know that those assignments are necessarily fixed, although they could be. We do see a number of these roles. Some of these roles include surrounding the throne and worshiping God. You think about Isaiah chapter 6, and he has this vision of God in the temple, high and lifted up, and he looks up, and there are angels there that are just bringing glory to God, singing constant, continual praise to God. Others, we know from the book of Jude and elsewhere, that they are doing battle, spiritual battle, against Satan and his minions on the behalf of God's people. And then others, we learn, other angels fulfill the very meaning of the word angel, which is just messenger, and they actually come to people on behalf of God. As God was revealing Scripture, as God was, was setting the, the plan of redemption in place and putting it in print, so to speak, God revealed Himself sometimes through angels. You think about even the beginning of the narrative of Jesus' own life, the, the birth narrative, and we see the presence of angels bringing messages to people, divine revelation. So, what we're talking about here is 
that second role of angels. The fact that angels fight in the spiritual realm on behalf of God's people. We see this in Daniel chapter 10. We see this in Daniel chapter 12. Also in Zechariah, we learn that the people of God, Israel in that case, they have these angels led by Michael who defend them against the fallen angels, including Satan. Their concern is to protect the people of God. They care for and protect the people of God. Does that mean there are specific guardian angels, one angel for each individual Christian? Perhaps, but there's not enough information in the Bible. I think we can say that definitively. I know that we sort of growing up think about, I have this specific angel. Uh, Perhaps you do. We don't know. We do know that the angels are fighting on our behalf. So I think of it like this, and I think this is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus and the Holy Spirit pray to God. They intercede to God on our behalf. And God, in response to those prayers, sends sometimes, sends angels, his angels, to minister to us. We see this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Those angels know what's happening in an individual Christian's life. They know what's happening. They know if this little one, this child is being blessed and protected and loved, for instance, by his fellow children, or if they're being neglected. And the scary part, I think this is what Jesus is bringing out, the scary part for us is if we neglect to protect them, we neglect to rescue our fellow children, that very angel who's been tasked to protect that child goes to the very face of God and reports exactly what's happening. Again, it's not that God the Father is not omniscient or Jesus or the Spirit are not omniscient, but there's another level of accountability for us, another level of I guess scariness for us that there is an angel who will report to God if we refuse to rescue our fellow children from sin. Will these angels report that you're helping, that this church is helping Christians in their walk with God, not neglecting them, reaching out to them, loving them, bringing them back into the fold? What do these angels have the dubious honor of going to God and say, that church is unfaithful, It does not rescue the falling ones. It does not go out and reach out and help. We try, and I'm sure we've failed in many ways, but we try as a church to account for every single church member. We pray for every one of you. A couple times a year, we reach out. The pastors themselves reach out to every single church member. We make sure, in fact, we, a big part of what we do on Monday mornings is to, is to walk through not just the ones whom we're praying for, but walk through those who might be falling through the cracks, walk through those, talk about those who might be needing a little bit of help in terms of rescuing them from sin. Again, we've, I'm sure, failed in many ways, but we don't want the angels of God going to God and saying, God, we've been down and we've assessed the situation. This child of yours is falling into sin and NBC does nothing about it. They neglect this child. Yet there are so many Christians who are more concerned that that sinning brother or sister likes them than if they're falling into sin. I think we all know that there's a lot of parents who have this approach to child-rearing, right? Right? They're more concerned that their children like them and love them and show appreciation to them than actually parenting the child. And it is a form of neglect. 
It's a form of despising your children. There's little to no discipline. It's a form of neglect. The Bible even says a parent who neglects discipline, who spares the rod, what? Spoils the child. Child, Children end up terrible because there was so much slack. The parents were more concerned about being loved than protecting and rescuing that child. The book of Proverbs actually later says a parent who does not discipline his child faithfully actually hates his child. Getting back to this idea of despising. Well, the same will be said of how we treat fellow believers, right? If your fellow child, your Christian brother or sister is sinning and it's destroying them and you know about it and you see this, but you're more concerned with whether or not that person likes you, that you won't talk to that person and encourage that person toward righteousness, it is a form of neglect. It is a form of despising them. It is not loving them. It's despising them. Don't despise them, Jesus is saying. Rescue them. And Jesus gives this final very familiar parable, the parable of the lost sheep. It's instantly understandable. We don't need a lot of instruction here. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And just think about how Jesus has set this up. Back in the first part of 10, you could say, you could summarize Jesus' word, words by saying, rescue fellow believers from sin because to refuse to do so is a form of hatred. It's a form of despising them. It's a form of neglecting them. Second, which is in the second part of verse 10, you could summarize Jesus' word by saying, rescue fellow believers from sin because the angels who are helping them, who minister to them, are speaking to God. And now with this parable, Jesus is saying, rescue fellow believers who sin because it is God's will and brings him great joy when a child, when one of his children is indeed rescued. Join God. In other words, join God in his rescue effort. In fact, this is the way that God has ordained it. You can think of it like this. The way God has ordained to save people is not just to zap people with salvation, but rather to, to, to bring an evangelist, to bring us to speak the gospel to them and, and bring them from darkness into light. And the same thing will be true of rescuing a child. God just doesn't just zap people. I'm sure he has, but the natural flow, what he has ordained is not to just zap people into freedom, but to bring along fellow children to rescue them from their sin and bring them back into the fold. I mean, what a great thing to be involved in this divine prerogative to bring back children who are fleeing the presence of God in their sin. We get to be a part of this. We get to be a part of this thing that makes God rejoice. We get to be a part of His plan of rescue for His own children. Now, Jesus is saying in this section, do not neglect your fellow believers, and here's your motivation. The rest of the chapter, so that's the why, the rest of the chapter deals with how. That's the hard part, right? Easier said than done to confront someone about their sin. How do we talk to someone about their sin? How do we rescue fellow sinners? And Jesus is going to speak to us how we do this. We do this with discipline, and we do this with forgiveness. And we'll look at that next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful instruction of how we are to love one another. 
We, we love one another in that initial embrace, that receiving of one another. Lord, I pray that you would grant us the desire, grant us the ability to receive one another in that way, to love and welcome one another in that way. And Lord, we often think in terms of, as a church, those who are coming into our church, believers are coming to a part of our church, but Lord, it does go both ways. Those who are coming, we know, are to embrace those who are here, to receive and love into their hearts those who are here. So I pray that we would do that. Lord, help us also protect one another. May the culture of the pursuit of holiness become a topic of conversation as we fellowship and do life with one another. And Lord, give us the desire to rescue one another. When we see brothers and sisters falling into sin, Lord, may we have this deep desire to rescue and to call them back. Lord, we know that brings you great joy, as it does us as well. So, Lord, we pray that you would bring those, just by looking on from the outside, those that are not believers, I pray that as they look inside the life of believers and inside the love that believers should have for one another, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, draw them to that fellowship. Show them that Christ indeed has loved them and given his life for them. Call them to salvation today. All of us need your help, so we ask for the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>